first, Ron, thank you uh, for joining me today. I know uh, many of the folks that might be listening in will have, uh, if not a relationship, some familiarity with you. Uh, Ron Cook and I have been friends for about 20 years now. And um, I met Ron when he came to be the director of the D-Men program at Truett. Prior to that, you were at Brownwood, but, but Ron, fill me in some, um, I know back in the day you went to Baylor and then to Southern, but tell me some about your pastoral experience and, and where you served in different churches. Okay, well, thank you, uh, and thank you, Steve. It, it is good to see you this morning. It's good to see anybody these days, uh, and especially friends, yeah. and especially pastors. I, um, I mean, you know about my regard for pastors, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. And uh, so, uh, uh, well, in a nutshell, Steve, I, um, you know, when I, I was a sophomore in college, when I was called to ministry, I was going to, I was playing football and going to a junior college in California when uh, I was called to ministry out of the Jesus movement. And uh, I've had that conversation more lately with several people. I won't digress into that today. But uh, I was actually working as a pastoral intern on one of our larger Baptist churches in California uh, when I transferred to Baylor. Okay. And so that was my first pastoral role uh, was as uh, an associate, mainly working alongside my pastor. But uh, went to Baylor, went to Southern, and uh, did a um, master's and PhD and planted a church. Uh, while I was doing my MDiv for the old home mission board in Indianapolis, inner city Indianapolis. And it, one of the greatest experiences of my life, three and a half years as a single guy and, you know, just uh, working hard. And I worked 35 plus hours a week, you know, on the weekends going up on Friday. Uh, but then um, did PhD work, married Sarah, pastored a little church in Kentucky, uh, finished that and went to suburban Atlanta, Georgia, and pastored a church in Decatur, Georgia, uh, for three years, and loved Georgia, I, uh, but was uh, uh, called to a church out in the Texas Panhandle. I'm a Panhandle native. I was born in Dumas, um, so Hereford uh, for 10 and a half years, then Brownwood, First Baptist, First Baptist Hereford, First Baptist Brownwood, and uh, then uh, David Garland and Paul Powell asked me to come talk to them about coming to Truett and uh, 19 years at Truett. Steve, I was a pastor for 30 years yeah. uh, where I was called as pastor with a little interlude during PhD work and have continued in uh, interim work uh, through these years. I'm going to celebrate my 50th year as a pastor next year. Wow. And I wasn't, uh, you know, when I left Truett and Baylor, uh, my main feeling about that was just gratitude over serving there and serving with my colleagues. The, the one thing I want to mark uh, if I live long enough into next year is that 50th anniversary because my pastoral calling uh, is, the, is, you know, the deepest and richest gift that God has given me to serve on this planet. And so I look forward to that. Well, over the course of these 50 years, let's, you know, Let's talk some about the changes you've seen. Um, I've gone through some of those and, and we've talked about some change. Tell me just what you've seen, positive and negative. I mean, what are, what are the good things that you see as far as um, changes in church structure? And, and uh, I, that's a huge question, Ron, and I, I hope it's not loaded. But let's just talk some about the, the changes and challenges that you've seen in church life over the last 50 years. Okay. Um, 
Well, part of this, Steve, I, you know, I was doing quite a bit of research on pastoral ministry and the pastoral life in my last role at Truett uh, at the Center for Ministry Effectiveness. And so uh, part of this, I may share some things from those dialogues as well as my own perception. So uh, not all of, none of my thinking that I ever share is just from me. I depend a lot on other pastors. Uh, you know, I'll never forget a conversation I had in Atlanta, Georgia, Steve, and I'm going to go back a ways to get to this question and then I'll ramp up quickly. But um, Louis D. Newton was uh, aging. He, Louis D. Newton and John Buchanan ran the Southern Baptist Convention right after the Second World War. I mean, the, there just wasn't those uh, John Buchanan out of Alabama, Louis D. Newton out of Georgia. For those who might not know who Louis D. Newton was, he did George W. Truett's funeral. Uh, and he was Mr. Uh, Georgia Baptist, and he was the journalist on the old 75 million campaign when, the, when Truett and Gambrell and those guys traveled the country to, to collect the first cooperative program offering. Anyway, Newton was at the end of his life, and he, he picked on me and a couple of other young guys to take him home every Monday from the minister's conference. And one day he just, he launched into me with just a lecture. He said, I, he said, I'm watching you and you've got a lot of promise and I'm really concerned about you, you preachers uh, right now because pastoral ministry has changed dramatically. And I said, well, Dr. Newton, what, what in the world do you mean? He said, you know, most of us old guys tried to be, he called them mother hen pastors. He said, we were running around trying to take care of everything and do everything. And uh, he said, uh, you know, pastoral life has changed so much that you're not going to be able to do that like we did. That was a signal to me that I was in the midst of a change. In fact, I started paying attention and talking to some of the better pastors there in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and they were becoming aware that there in the early 80s that we, we were probably at the beginning of a sea change of pastoral life. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows the factors. Uh, I've watched them kind of unfold. Uh, part is just, you know, the administrative load. Uh, let me mention two or three things. One, the administrative load of administering a growing number of programmatic needs, personal needs, uh, is uh, just required. That's one thing Louis D. Newton mentioned. He said he just had seen a big change in administration. Uh, personal needs. Uh, dramatically increased. And, and I tell you, we're in an era right now of just dramatic uh, change in emotional needs. Uh, the incidence of depression and anxiety alone, those are the two biggies that people talk about. But just the pastoral needs and how those are addressed. Yeah. And then, then the cultural change and how that impacts how we navigate church life. So, so Steve, I'm, I mean, now I'm, I don't want to get into rambling but I do think at that point, I tried to step back and begin to look at how things are changing and they've continued to do so. Now, everybody, anybody who's listened and you listen to podcasts, you've listened to more of this than I have of people who are very insightful about the changes in pastoral life. Uh, uh, but Steve, we're right now, especially in this coronavirus, I think one of the really important things that we can do as pastors is step back and see it's changing right before our eyes. And we had better be in dialogue and realize that we, uh, we can't do it just like we have. Now, I don't know if we'll have time uh, to, you know, I don't know. 
I'll let you guide this about where you want to zone in on it. One, in this kind of discussion, I think one of the things that you have to think about is those things that don't change. Right. You know, I hear so much talk about change. I, I want to raise my hand at times, you know, when I'm in those discussions or you can't do it in a podcast and say, uh, you know, in a sense, everything has changed, but in a sense, there are some things that just aren't going to. Right. Uh, to be a shepherd and to really care for God's people and give oversight, and if we're talking about pastors, we're talking about congregations, right. whatever right. the form. And, uh, you know, uh, being a shepherd, it, there is something about that that is just enduring. And uh, I know... I was using uh, St. Gregory the Great's uh, pastoral rule in my pastoral ministry courses in the last few semesters. And I'm amazed. He, that was the definitive book on pastoral ministry for hundreds of years. And there are some things about being a shepherd that just aren't going to change. Giving oversight, you're responsible for the congregation and giving oversight to it. Uh, proclamation of the Word of God to handle and proclaim the Scriptures faithfully, to continue to be immersed in them, to hear the voice of God, to preach the message of God. Uh, and, you know, I know, Steve, I know you and I agree on these kinds of things. I think it's important when we talk about change to also restate fairly regularly, or at least nail down for ourselves individually, uh, those things that do not change. And so let me mention four and I'll, I'll end this, my rant here. It's not a rant, but my ramble, you know, uh, being a shepherd, a pastor, shepherd, a proclaimer, uh, a disciple maker, and a leader giving oversight to the congregation. Uh, those, th those roles have not changed the way those roles function. And that may be help us, you know, with this conversation, the way we function in those roles, I think that's where our adaptability is critical. And uh, uh, so anyway, I'll stop right there. I don't know if we want to focus well, in on any of that. You and I are, are in agreement on on that. I I think that that the change could be really more a focus on just the simple things of church, those basic things that you've mentioned, um, you know, proclamation, uh, care of the people, um, just, I had, well, I had a mutual friend um, ask me, gosh, it's been three years ago, uh, and, and he's probably 75 now, and, and pastored a long time, and and he just looked at me one day and he goes, Steve, whatever happened to being a pastor? <laughs> because the role had become such an administrative role mm -hmm. and less dealing with those pastoral characteristics. And I, I think, let me rephrase that. I think what, uh, I think his pastor had taken on a whole lot more administrator than mm -hmm. pastor. And that's where his question came from. So, yeah. so the roles really, how have you seen um, to follow up on your idea there, how have you seen the fulfillment of those roles change? Some? Oh my, what a question. Well, that's a great question, Steve. How have I seen fulfillment? Um, I haven't thought enough about that, but I, I can give you one. Um, and, uh, 
you know, Steve, I, I, um, I think being fulfilled as a pastor has, in my observation, has always been a struggle for many pastors and how, how to really have the sense of fulfillment and wholeness that, that keeps one healthy and growing. That may be one of the critical questions of the pastoral life, by the way, that you just asked. I think you're right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I think, uh, I think I see, generally speaking, I see pastors less fulfilled when they, when the frenetic, uh, and, uh, the variation of pastoral life, when you lose the balance, I think we're in an era where these kinds of things happen often, where the frenetic pace, the uh, multiple demands and keeping perspective on those multiple demands, you know, week by week. Um, I, I don't know that pastors are as fulfilled now as they were when I started serving as a pastor in 1972. Wow. Uh, now that's a general thing, but I think it's always been a struggle. I really do. I don't, I don't think it's all that dramatic, but I think because of the changes in church, in uh, culture, whatever, I, I think, you know, there was a sense when I entered pastoral ministry that there was, you know, you basically know what you're going to have to do and you can kind of order your life. And we were taught in seminary, we were given almost a template one or two templates for a pastoral week. And boy, I was in pastoral ministry about three or four years and just threw those away. I mean, it just got blown up. And so, uh, you know, sensing that I'm doing what God has called me to do and what fulfills me the most, uh, I think there's more of a struggle, particularly right now. Of course, we're talking about a pandemic. This is a, this is an aberration historically, but uh, we could go back and look at other crisis times but uh steve i think it's i think it's tougher and uh i'm you know as you probably are i'm hearing from more pastors how tough things are and how much they're struggling i do hear that and one of the things that um one of the periods in my pastoral ministry that was the most difficult was when my group fell apart mm -hmm. i had a group of about six of us Mm -hmm. and, and, and things changed. I mean, part of it was life change. Part of it, um, you know, I had, you know, one of the guys left and, and took a job outside of a traditional ministry role. And so, so while our friendship remained, our, our conversation wasn't there and the support was different and, you know, just, just different life events for others that caused that group to really disintegrate. And we didn't have that that mutual support and sort of isolation uh, for me really became uh, an aspect of, uh, well, it just made pastoral life much more difficult. You know, you, um, there, there just comes a point at which my wife is sick of hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I think, I think that uh, COVID has increased isolation. Um, I look too at associational and denominational life and participation in those has really changed. And so I wonder if that lack of community there plays into the difficulty of pastoral role too. Yeah. It's uh boy, Steve, it's a huge, huge, huge factor. I, uh, 
And I agree with you. I think, uh, well, uh, and I have experienced what you said just in moves and other, you know, historic changes in time and place, uh, losing, uh, you know, a really good group of people. And it's and finding another one isn't easy. I think it gets harder too as you move along through life in general and through the pastorate to find folks with with whom you feel the kind of compatibility. But you need it desperately. Need it. You do. And I, I think, in retrospect, I wish I had pushed a little harder to find that locally. You know, when I was in Oklahoma, um, and been more. Uh, been more determined in finding that and then been been a little more dogged in hanging on to some of the relationships that I, I already had um, and needed to build on. So anyway, well, let me, Ron, one of the things we've talked about in the past has been discipleship. And I know that's a, that's a very close to your heart. You've done some work with first Woodway in that role um, in your uh, semi- Semi-retirement, I guess, is a way to put it. Um, and, and I hear, man, I hear just time and again, you know, you got to make disciples. you got to make disciples. And that's the key to church now. But, but I'll be honest with you. Nobody has told me what a disciple is and how to make one. And, <laughs> and so I look at that and... Well, I'll tell you this very quickly. I was in a conference, and it was a day-long conference on how to reach millennials, and and the guy just kept pumping, you know, you got to make disciples, you got to make disciples, and I'm sitting there through the day, and and by the end of the day, I just thought, man, you don't know what you're talking about, and so I asked him privately after the uh, the conference. I said, so so hey, what is a disciple? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. And, uh, and he goes, well, well, it's a fisher of men. And I said, is that it? And he goes, well, of course, and walked away. And so I thought, yeah, you, so let's talk about that a little bit. So when we talk about discipleship, what's a disciple anyway? Well, Steve, we, you know, I may enter some, uh, controversial territory here I'm, I'm going to be I'm at a point in life where I can be more candid because I think there I think there are some things that uh, that have troubled me about how I see things described and, and I want to be careful and fair to uh, in in this um, but uh, Steve first of all I'm going to come across uh, as as a Pauline pietist here and I know pietism has uh, been under assault and criticism by many uh, now for quite some time, just the word um, and and the pietistic movement. And I don't, I understand that. And I think I'm attuned, uh, you know, to avoiding that. And, um, uh, but, you know, first of all, Steve, if we want to talk, Jesus, of course, said, come follow me. Yeah. Okay. And man, I take that so literally uh, to, but I think, we need to ask to what end uh, for the apostle Paul uh, the end was to know him and the power of his resurrection and for me I've got to know what I am as a disciple before I can even think about walking alongside others in discipling 
And I think to, to actually know the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to know the Father through Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection uh, and being conformed to him, uh, even in sacrifice, even in uh, a cruciform life, for the long haul, we have the advantage that Jesus' first disciples didn't have. They didn't have much time with him. Yeah. And uh, so when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about the tremendous advantage we have to come to know the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, our, the Messiah of God, and to know him personally. And the power and the meaning that he brings to life that we may, that he may form in us by being in us, mm -hmm. you know, the, the indwelling Christ. I know I'm going to sound Pauline, uh, like Paul here, but that's who I am. And uh, to have, you know, to actually uh, let him form in us the person who we are made in the image of God to be, you know, only he can do that. <laughs> we talk about being made in the image of God and, I think we truncate a lot of those. I don't think that's fully understood until we see him forming us into the unique person he made us to be. Yeah. And Steve, that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I began in walking with others. We're, we're walking among people who can one come to know uh, God through the living Lord personally. And for that, for him through the Holy spirit to be at work within us to create us, you know, into the person that God made us to be, that we can, you know, I get so excited when I was teaching students, I got so excited looking at those seminary students, knowing that each and every one of them was created by God and called by God to be a really unique uh, testimony and minister of God. And so often I think their struggle was to find how unique and personal it really was. So, for me to know that is critical. I can't make disciples unless I'm growing myself. And we could talk more about that. I've had some really profound experiences during this COVID. And that's probably another conversation just about, you know, between me and God. And uh, so then uh, let me break it down this way, Steve. I think it's, I think discipleship then is crucial for, uh, and you can't, you can't, uh, separate it from evangelism. I think to guide folks to that encounter of their own and to come to know God in Christ uh, and to walk with new believers as they're coming to understand the faith, I think that's crucial. I think pastors, all pastors should have one or more new believers that they're walking alongside and, you know, and, and guiding them to know what this relationship is and what you know, basic elements of their walk with God are. Mm -hmm. So I think discipleship is really crucial uh, in a pastor and others. Uh, I think uh, discipleship for me, and now I'm getting into how I functioned as a disciple maker um, or disciple guide or, you know, uh, somebody who's walking alongside others. Um, I think to find people who are really on a growing edge uh, you know, there are some who come to that point where, and, and it may, and it's usually more than we know. Um, and I think, by the way, I think everyone should be in some kind of group. You alluded to that for pastors. I think that's true for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
but but to try to identify when folks are really at a growing uh, edge and and whether that's one or more uh, I think you know that I have a real belief in small group discipleship. Right. One of the most fascinating things is to get with a group of people who have some real common ground and that what they're sensing that God is growing them to be more into their, their own unique calling, which everybody has, everybody, every one of us is called and their use of their gifts and who they uniquely are as a minister of God. And then I'm, I'm in a role now where I'm with some really maturing disciples. I was asked to come and direct the institute that, doc, that Dr. Paul Sands had started at First Woodway. It's really fascinating because it's kind of a seminary-like and yet church-based uh, program for uh, teachers and emerging leaders mm -hmm. at First Woodway. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, I have really been taken by these people. They have to make a three-year commitment. It's a pretty heavy reading load. Uh, meet weekly fall and spring terms. And to really, you know, stay with it growing and growing into their ministry and into their calling. And this has opened a door to me that I hadn't been as conscious, I hadn't as consciously cultivated as Paul has at First Woodway. I'm really enamored with it and having fun with it yeah. you know uh when he asked me to come and work my own hours and th that was a pretty strong appealing <laughs> thing but i put in quite a bit of time i'm working i love it so it's not hard to get the hours in but to to be a uh you know a guide and a fellow uh journeyer with folks who are at a really high level of commitment and growing more into a lifelong calling so back to the beginning, Steve, that's, that's, those are, I think discipleship has its phases. Where are the people in their, in their Christian life? Where are they? Yeah. And what would help them at that point grow more into who they are as a person? And th those initial phases are something we've really missed and neglected. Right. Right. And here's where I'm going to get controversial. I, I've been really concerned um, in the last two or three decades, and, and I'm going to have to be careful here in just defining discipleship as Christ following, uh, it, we just the language and what that, and then how I hear that appear to be that we just do the things that Christ did. I've seen that become really legalistic. Yeah. It's almost like a new Phariseeism, uh, that if I can define a few things that I saw that Jesus did and I need to do those, then I am, that's my lifelong calling of discipleship and, and discipleship becomes horizontal. I mean, in the sense that it becomes uh, lived out mainly on a human level. Now I, I don't, I, I'm fascinated by many young people who dive into that because, and I think they're right in terms of the activism side of being a disciple. Right. And in, you know, in really uh, seeking better life and justice and uh, uh, and really pursuing things that need to be done and, you know, to represent Christ in our world. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, you know, the short list uh, can very quickly miss the, miss the vertical. You know, the, the, this, the life of discipleship is a supernatural life. Right. Uh, it is 
God indwelling Christ indwelling us through the spirit. And I don't want to, I don't, <laughs> my theologian friends would now start weighing in and pushing like crazy, but you know, it, it is an indwelled life and it's God at work in us. And so what is discipleship helping folks discover? Boy, the grand uh, and magnificent life of a kingdom perspective with, you know, with our risen Lord Jesus Christ. It is very personal. That's where my pietism, you can hear the, mm-hmm. you can hear my, my pietism ringing there uh, because it is deeply personal and I think deeply spiritual yeah. and supernatural. You mentioned a couple of things that, that I want to follow up on. One is um, you used this relational language multiple times that this is walking together. Um, and, and I think that's a term that you used. You walk with people in discipleship. And, and I think one of the weaknesses, um, and, and here's a change that we're, I think we're trying to figure out. One of the weaknesses of the old Sunday school model is it is predominantly an educational model. We learn concepts. And while we need to learn those, I think we have to walk beside one another to learn how to embody those in our, in our world. And so, so I don't want to dog Sunday school completely, um, but I, I think to to follow Christ the way, to allow him to be formed in us the way that you're talking about requires more than um, me sitting in a class for an hour for a week. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. And, and uh, I want to respond to that, but I want to, I want to say something first. I, you know, because you mentioned something that would have to do with church structure. I, I really do think, you know, the simple, simple church approaches are important. And I, and I don't think we need to lose the Bible. And I know you're not saying that, but one thing that has been lost in a lot of the structural models that you and I have in traditional use of Sunday school is the discipleship dimension. And I want to just suggest for those who are thinking through, you know, their structural way of doing things. I really think those churches that have adopted something like the adult Bible fellowship model, um, and I'll go ahead and mention a couple of names. I think, you know, I think Steve Stroop and Carter Shotwell got a lot of things right over there at their church. And in the ABF model, where every Bible study group also had expectations for di- discipleship and missions. Yeah. And it was real simple. They didn't have much other cert- church structure. So I'll go past that. That's, that's more of a structural thing. Steve, uh, let me get even more elemental on what you just said, because I think you're, I think you have hit on where we may have missed it most and the relational part. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use an analogy of a child. I, you know, I have three grandchildren now and I'm, I'm in a home. I mean, uh, I ought to have a, I ought to have a degree in child development because the woman I married and my daughter who's a tenured professor in child development and one of my sons, who's a, a pastor is a is just brilliant about children and I listen to him talk and I'm sorry about that. Um, I think Sarah may be out in the garage and <laughs> trying to work on some stuff and didn't get the phone. See, I, I watch the children 
and young people. And a child and a young person is not going to find their own uniqueness and become the person that they need to become. I don't think, I, I mean, I'm going to be kind of dogmatic at this point, just developmentally. I don't think it happens until they finally see somebody that they want to be like. Right. I think we take the first major step in knowing who we are and who we want to be when we can look and say, I, I want to be like that. Now, I had the tremendous advantage of, of, of my father and, uh, uh, I, I, I'm going to run the risk of digressing because this is, this is huge for me personally, but just a godly, godly man of character and faith. And Steve, I wasn't very young before I was very conscious that I want, I wanted to be like him. Right. And so I've, I had a many years struggle with idolatry because I idolized and f had to deal with that uh, and, and, and marginalize that to m help me realize that was a step toward really wanting to be like, mm -hmm. like Christ. Mm -hmm. But you know, Steve, unless a young, I think that's one of the things missing. I really thought a lot about this during Baylor's sexual assault scandal. A lot of those young men that have gone the wrong way and, and, and I've, I've read you know, Grant Teff has done some interesting work on this and working with athletes. A lot of those young men never had anybody that they wanted to be like and emulate right. so that to become a better person, right? become more the kind of person they wanted to be. Okay. Using that analogy, I think until a disciple can visualize the kind of person they really could become and something deep happens within them where they say, I have the capacity yeah. to really be a, someone special in this life. And I'm not talking about some image of success. I think that's how things go awry or some, uh, anyway, we could go into psychology and I won't do that, but I think that's critical. And so for you to, in terms of the relational part, I think that's why the apostle Paul, you know, talked about have this mind be in you is also in Christ Jesus. And Paul said, imitate me. I don't think that was an ego thing. Yeah. I think well, Paul was running into people that didn't know what they wanted to be like. Absolutely. I, well, and I was going to use that exactly what Paul said there. And, and here's one of the things I always get excited when I talk to you because I, I mean, I can't not do theology. I love doing this. <laughs> and, if, and if you're not familiar with a guy named Graham Tomlin, okay. he, he's in England. And he's a former Baptist who's now, um, well, he was the, the head of St. Paul's Theological Center. And he's, uh, he's Anglican now, but great guy, really good theologian. And he wrote a book entitled Spiritual Fitness, Christian Character in a Consumer Culture. And in it, he quotes, um, he quotes Alan Bloom, in the closing of the American mind. And yeah. he says, students have powerful images of what a perfect body is and they pursue it incessantly, but they no longer have any image of a perfect soul and hence do not long to have one. And so Boy, I, I, tell you. I think that follows up on what you've said is we don't have this picture of that's, that's attractive and compelling and I grew up, you know, with my dad and John Paul Carter and Doug Ezell and Preston. Yeah. And, and wow. that I could just really look up to. Right. And, and so I, I mean, 
I think you're right that it's it's very relational and it's it's very it, it calls me to invest in the life of people younger than me. Yeah. They are worth that. Not yeah. so that I can be an image for them, but but just to see the best in them. And as you do that, then they begin to draw that affirmation and and there's that uh, that imitation of Christ in us, we hope. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, well, that's, I mean, that's the watershed, what you just said. I'll, I'll, I'll find that book. Uh, I mean, that is the watershed. And on the negative side, just look at what so many people in our culture want to be. And uh, I mean, I need to lose weight and get in shape, but I look at folks who are, who have so, you know, they're, their model of who they want to be is uh, something that was more defined in, in Hollywood or some, yes. you know, someplace else. Anyway, I don't, I don't need to go that much in that. I need to confess and get in shape. But anyway, uh, you know, you see what, boy, these, you know, uh, people, young uh, adults. I mean, I even, in fact, seen senior adults who are trying to be like somebody. And I think it's just almost grotesque right. what right. they're trying to be like. Right. And it's, it, it is not the image of Christ. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's the thing that I'm really working towards. I mean, is, is, um, you know, ideally you, you mentioned kids and minor, you know, young adult and late teens now. And, and when you start out, you, you know, you take your kids with you. They don't have an option, you know, and then they start to, to get, to grow up enough that they can go with you. And all of a sudden that's a different dynamic. Um, and then they get to the point that they're just really fun to be around, you know, and, and mm -hmm. to use that imagery in a disciple making kind of thing is, you know, it, it's taking people with you, walking with them and then letting them walk with other folks uh, as as they grow into Christ likeness. And um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate that, Ron. Let me ask one, one last question because I know we've both got, got obligations and things to do. So, so how would we, how would we structure or how would we form that kind of small group? Um, is it the adult Bible fellowship model? Is there a, another way? How would you be intentional in, in forming a group like that or, or groups like that so that we could um, we could have those kind of walking alongside relationships. Steve, if I were a pastor again, and I, I have to kind of come at that question this way and uh, you know, I'm no longer, I mean, I am a pastor, I'm part-time and, uh, and it's, gosh, it's been a very exciting to walk alongside some remarkable pastoral staff people at the church where I'm serving. And, observing them. But, uh, so, but if I were a pastor again, one, I'd have to get the structure, I'd have to get the structure simplified and right. Yeah. And that would include uh, an expectation that uh, everyone would have an opportunity to be involved in uh, small group discipleship in some form, which means that, you know, you would really need to be finding folks who could lead those groups. I mean, it's a process and it, that would require uh, you know, orientation and training, but I don't think that's all that, I think we've made things too hard. I think 
you know, that might be another conversation. I don't know. So first of all, I think you'd have to get the structure thing right so that you've got an ethos in the congregation of discipleship. Mm-hmm. But as, but I'm going to say something else as a pastor. Uh, and I think with, with some, you know, every congregation has folks who need to be, uh, who are, boy, there are some spiritual giants in most of our churches. And that's, that's not the best word, but folks who are capable of walking, maybe not spiritual giants is not the right word, but people who are spiritual people who are mature and uh, who are uh, steady, who have the character and the walk with God for others to step in and walk alongside them. And I think a pastor needs to have those folks and, uh, meeting regularly and looking and seeking out one to take care of new believers and those who are young in the faith. Um, and, uh, two to identify folks who are in growing edges. And I think that, I think it needs to be a special process, uh, of pastoral and spiritual leaders of the congregation. Ideally, you know, a pastor would be walking with some key spiritual leaders you know, and it may be from among the deacon body, those that are m- more mature in their faith or whatever. And so, I, uh, and uh, how does it look like? I, I, I think it, I think, you know, you really need to be sensitive uh, to, you know, people who really are at a growing phase. You know, new believers, uh, those who have really hit a point of really wanting to grow more into their calling and ministry. Right. I think that is a missed opportunity in almost in many, many churches. Yeah. There are folks sitting there who, th- who I can't tell you how many times I've been told in this new job, I've always, I've always wanted to do wh- what we're doing, growing more in my understanding and ministry. These are mature, lifelong servants of Christ. Yeah. And we're just giving them, I mean, you went through our D-Men program. What we did in D-Men, we just kind of created an opportunity you know, brought in the scholars and the environment and the curriculum to, to grow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for people to, so I think we need to be growing our, our people and, and it would, you need, I think it's an annual strategy, Steve. I think it's annual. I think to sit down with leaders and staff and, you know, who are the folks in our church that are emerging in their growth and how do we walk alongside one another and walk alongside them? And it may be two or three people. I tell you what, you take two or three people that are growing in their faith, that are in key leadership positions in a church, they can leaven a huge segment of the congregation. You know, Ron, I, I, you've hit on several things that, and of course, I've, one, I've been influenced by you a lot over the last 20 years. And, um, but but we, we really, I think that, that idea of sim- simplicity, the simplicity of structure, and the more the more I'm in this, I look at if you can just get a few of those key people that are starting to grow and empower them and encourage them and, and just, uh, I hate the language of, of pour into another person, so I'm not going to use that. But if you can walk beside them as they grow and, and it can change the dynamic of a church, um, I fully believe that that um, uh, you can see some powerful exponential growth. That's the word I was looking for. You can see some exponential results uh, from that. And um, so 
when you think of Jesus started with 12 uh, and one of those failed and now look, you know, so anyway, that's kind of, I could go on that for a while and I don't want to. Well, I would say amen to what you just said, Steve. I, uh, you know, in my last two pastorates, I think the main lasting impact of my pastoral ministry in my last two pastorates uh more and, and you know and i don't want to limit myself and certainly you know i don't have any glowing record of any kind to promote but my, the investment of walking alongside right. a few key people and watch their lives across the years yeah. uh, I, you can see it yeah absolutely absolutely well, Ron, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for taking the time, and I appreciate you, and it's always good to hang out. And uh, I know that, that you and I could go on for a while um, because I just enjoy enjoy visiting with you. You, uh, you excite me and encourage me when we get together, so I appreciate that. Well, you do me too, Steve. In fact, I think we might have modeled something. You know, uh, walking alongside one another, you're both learning. I've learned and grow when I talk to you. I'm so thankful that you're doing what you're doing, Steve, because you, I love pastors yeah. and you do too. Yeah. And, uh, uh, just, and I really, I'm thankful for Texas Baptist that we have people strategically placed, um, uh, to care about our pastoral leaders. And I'm thankful for what you're doing and you, that you have a heart for it. Well, I appreciate and it. Your and your colleagues. So, uh, yeah. but you, especially you're my friend and I appreciate you. Well, Ron, thank you, man. Y'all have a great weekend. And if I don't talk to you, talk to you beforehand, enjoy Thanksgiving and the holidays. Okay. Thanks, Steve. See you later. Bye-bye.